The following audio is from Maple City Baptist Church in Chatham, Ontario. For more information about Maple City, please visit us online at maplecitybaptistchurch.com. Well, we're going to be looking again this evening at the life of the Apostle Peter. And uh, Peter was a wonderful man of God. You go through his story, and it's one of those stories that just is so encouraging to all of us, I think, because we find ourselves in the life of the Apostle Peter. We find ourselves at times in the victories, at times having faith and, and doing the right thing. And I think many times we find ourselves in the life of the Apostle Peter in the times that he failed, in the times that he, that he regretted his actions, in the, in the times that even he denied his Lord. And that is Peter. He was a man that was used greatly by God. In fact, it was his voice on Pentecost that was used to start the church. What an incredible opportunity and honor that was given to this man. And so we will see this man who demonstrated both the wonderful acts of faith and the incredible lapses of faith. And we will hopefully learn about our faith in what Christ attempted to teach him. We saw last week the first event in Peter's life. It was his call to discipleship. And we saw that the call, first of all, was to follow Christ. It was to follow him. It was to be transformed to become more and more like Jesus. We saw, second of all, that discipleship is about a person. And so it's not a call just to a certain set of beliefs. It's not a call to follow a certain church or a certain denomination. It's a a call to follow a person. And Jesus, as alive and well as he was then in Peter's time, is just as alive and well as he he was then, as he is today. And that's, that's a thought that I don't think we think about often enough. He is up there. He is on the throne. We can communicate with him. In fact, he's... He's at the throne of God on our behalf all the time. This is an incredible truth that we walk with a living Savior. And so he is alive and well, and we follow a person. And, and so what I'm trying to say is don't get so caught up in, in, in just the, the actions, the, the going through the motions of religion. Keep your eyes on Christ. Keep your eyes on that relationship because any of the traditions and any of the, the things that he has given to us, he's given to us to point us back to him. Then we saw, finally, that discipleship is a process. It is not one of those things that that you just decide to do and then it's done for the rest of your life. It is something that you decide every day that you live. We must decide to follow Jesus. We must decide to grow. And and through our lives, we will see this transformation. Peter was called the rock at the very beginning. But he didn't become the rock for many, many years. It was this process of transformation and it was a daily decision to follow Christ that made Peter, the, the man who was just flip-flopping all over the place, become this rock. So over the next few weeks, I look forward to walking with Peter as he walks with Jesus. We will see the first-hand account of Peter's discipleship process. So if you turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 14, this story is a very familiar story to us. It's nearly so familiar that I think maybe we'll, we'll turn to it and figure out where we're at tonight and decide that, I know this thing. I've been through this story. I've heard it preached before. It's time for a little nap. Before you fall asleep, I want to encourage you that the Word of God is very deep, that there's a lot in it. And even as I studied it the last couple weeks, because last week was canceled, so I had this extra week of study, and even as I've gone through it again and again this week, I've seen in it just more and more. The Word of God is so deep. It's so wonderful, and it's, it's this simple story that's so packed full of wonderful truth. And so I know it's familiar, but it's familiar and it's wonderful. I encourage you to stick around for a few minutes as we read about the discipleship process, 
that Peter underwent as a follower of Jesus. And so Matthew chapter 14, the chapter begins with the beheading of John the Baptist. He's taken into custody because he was preaching against Herod, and then Herod's wife decides that he wants him to be killed, and so convinces her daughter to have John the Baptist's head on a platter, and so that's what Herod does for her. And so this news comes to Jesus and comes to Jesus' disciples. And I bring that up just because understand that they just watched a follower of Jesus who loved Jesus, who was pointing to Jesus, killed for his faith. And then Jesus is traveling around doing these miracles. And he, after a day of preaching and miracles, has this crowd of 5,000 men plus women and children who haven't eaten all day but just been following him around. And and just remember that 5,000 is like... It's a group of many different towns that must be following him. This is a huge number of people, especially during that day. And so they're all following him. They're, they're all just hungry. They're tired. They're, they're famished. And Jesus sees that. He has compassion on them. And so he decides to ask his disciples that they would, that they would feed them. And, and again, this is an incredible, crazy command that he asks of his disciples. But remember, he's teaching them a lesson. And so they say, well, Jesus, we can't do it. We have five loaves. We have two fish. There's no way we can feed this many people. And Jesus says, yeah, let's, just, let's just try. No, let's just, let's just do it. And so they start feeding, and ultimately they take 12 baskets full, from one lunch to 12 baskets full, with 5,000 men plus women and children being, having everything they can possibly eat, being completely stuffed after a day of not eating. Just a wonderful story. And what we see there is Jesus showing the disciples who he is, and showing them that they can trust in him. That he will provide. That he will take care of it. That even in the impossible situations, he is God. And that's what they're learning. That's what he's been teaching them. And so we get, come to Matthew chapter 14, and we, I think we should come into this saying, what is Jesus going to teach them next? Or what is Jesus going to teach us next? And so Matthew chapter 14, verse 22 says, And straightway Jesus constrained his disciples to get into a ship, and to go before him to the other side, while he sent the multitudes away. And when he had sent the multitudes away, he went up into a mountain apart to pray. And when the evening was come, he was there alone. So Jesus takes his disciples. They've just seen all this happen. They've just been amazed by what Jesus did. And then it's kind of almost a strange thing that he does. He says, okay, disciples, I want you to get in this ship. And you're going to travel across the Sea of Galilee from Bethsaida to Gennesaret. You're going to go all the way across the the 10-kilometer boat ride, and I'm going to just send you off alone. I'm not going with you. I'm going to go on the mountain to pray. I'll meet up with you another time. And I think if I'm a disciple, I'm thinking, Jesus, why? I mean, we'll go pray with you. And, And it wasn't uncommon for Jesus to have people come pray with him. And so it seems like a strange request. Now, we understand on this side of the story that Jesus had a plan that he was going to teach them something. But I want us to just get in the mind of the disciples for a moment. They're being compelled or constrained to do something already that doesn't make any sense. Okay, Jesus, if you want us to, I guess we'll do what you're asking us to do. But can you imagine their surprise when all of a sudden they're on this sea and they're doing what Jesus told them to do, and then all of a sudden there's this, this storm? Now, a very similar storm occurred with the disciples A few chapters ago, in Matthew chapter 8, that time Jesus was with them and he was asleep in the bottom of the boat. This time Jesus isn't with them. So they learn the lesson when Jesus is there, physically present, but now what are they going to do when he's off in a mountain praying and they're by themselves in the middle of this lake? We'll find out. 
Verse 24, but the ship was now in the midst of the sea, tossed with waves, for the wind was contrary. So they get out on this boat, and we find that, that the wind is contrary. They're in the middle of the sea, and all of a sudden this storm hits. Uh, John chapter 6, in a parallel passage, gives us a little bit more information. In chapter 6, verse 18, it says, And the sea arose by reason of a great wind that blew. And the word arose is, is simply awoken. It, it woke up. And so you have this sea that seemed calm, and it's, all of a sudden, it's alive. It's like this crazy monster, this crazy dragon that just woke up and is now out to destroy them. Mark adds a detail in Mark chapter 6, verse 48. It says, and he saw them toiling in rowing. And so here Jesus, unbeknownst to them, is watching them. And as he watches them, he sees them toiling in rowing, for the wind was contrary to them. So Jesus is watching as they row, and he sees them toiling. And the word toiling is a really interesting word. Because when I first looked, I thought, yeah, he saw them, you know, they were, they were working hard. They weren't just like, have you ever been canoeing with somebody? And you know that all they're doing is putting the paddle in the water and then letting it drift. Right? They're not doing that. I thought, you know what, okay, every one of them, they're, they're, they're putting their back into it. But the word toiling doesn't just mean working. It means torment or torture. It was difficult for them. I'll give you some examples of where this word is used in the Bible to give you an idea of, of how, how difficult this would have been. We first have in Matthew chapter 8, verse 6, the torment of unbearable sickness soon before death. That's the word that's, that's translated toiling here. It's torment. In Revelation chapter 12, verse 2, the word torment or toiling is translated for a word that, that talks about the pain of childbearing, of giving birth. So you ladies are like, oh man, this is bad. Yeah, it was bad. It was tough. Um, in Mark chapter 5 or 7, it's the torment of the demons that were being judged by Jesus. And in Revelation chapter 20 verse 10, it is the torment of eternal hell. And so, I mean, what I'm trying to say is this was a serious word. They were going through some very serious difficulty. And Jesus was, was there on the water. They didn't know it, but he's there from far away watching it happen seeing the difficulty they're going through and knowing that it's torture for them. And then we come to John chapter 6, verse 19, and we find out a little bit more information. It says, so when they had rowed about 5 and 20 or 30 furlongs. And the word furlong is, is stadia, and it's about the size of a football stadium. It's about 150 to 200 meters. And so they've traveled about 4 to 5 kilometers. And... and They've been toiling in this torment for four to five kilometers, now in the middle of the sea trying to get there. Now, if that's not enough, if you're like, oh man, you know, well, they've, they've only been toiling for a couple minutes, right? That's not the case. Look at verse 25. It says, and in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went to them. So he's watching them before, but it's not until the fourth watch of the night that Jesus goes to them. This is really interesting because it, the Bible says that he sent them off before the evening came. And so they've been there, let's say evening is 6 or 7 o'clock, and now the fourth watch would have been between 3 a.m. and 6 p.m., or 6 a.m. So they've been there 6, 7, 8, 9, maybe 12 hours toiling. 12 hours in the middle of the sea, 12 hours rowing, 12 hours with this, this terrible storm. Not being able to, I mean, this, this journey, the whole thing, 10 kilometers, should have taken less than an hour. And here for 
eight hours, they're, they're going in so much difficulty with this, the waves and not making any progress. And it's, it's so tough for them. They're toiling. What's Jesus doing up until this point? He's watching. Verse 25, and in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went unto them walking on the sea. Verse 26, and when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, it is a spirit, and they cried out for fear. I think at this point, if you're a disciple, you put yourself in their shoes. You understand why they're scared, right? Terrible storm. (laughs) They're just completely exhausted, completely dead, toiling, and like no idea how this is, if this is going to end, or how this is going to end. And all of a sudden, they look out and they see what, what looks like a ghost to them. The word f- spirit here is, it's, it's a ghost. And it's not just that they think it's, you know, oh, that, that's Uncle, you know, Joey, back from the dead. It's, it's a ghost. The word that is translated ghost isn't found anywhere else in the New Testament, but in the Old Testament Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament that the Jews were using at this time, um, every time that this word is used, it's used in connection with a demonic spirit. And so what they think they see is something that is evil and terrifying coming for them. And they're scared. I mean, <laughs> these are grown men that have been on the sea forever, and they're terrified. Verse 27. But straightway, Jesus spoke unto them, saying, Be of good cheer, it is I. Be not afraid. Can you imagine that, what that felt like? Can you imagine they see this figure and they're just terrified and then the figure speaks to them and says, Be of good cheer. Be not afraid. It is I. And the word it is I is literally I am. You don't need to be afraid. You know when he said that? He didn't calm the sea. He didn't change their circumstances. There was still a man walking toward them on the water. They're, they're still in the middle. They were still toiling. They were still rowing. Right? If they, if they stopped, their, their boat was just going to go nuts. So they're still in the exact same circumstances, and Jesus comes to them and he says, don't be afraid. Be of good cheer. I mean, don't, don't be upset. Be happy. Be joyful. Be of good cheer. Why? Because I am. Not that I fixed. Not that I did. Not that I've performed the miracle yet. But I am. I am whatever you need in this situation. And so that is where the story that we find in Mark chapter 6 and in John chapter 6, it ends. I mean, eventually they, they get off and they're, they're saved and Jesus comes on the ship. But when we look at the Gospel of Matthew, Gospel of Matthew adds kind of an addendum to the story. And this is the, the part about Peter that's very specific here. And so in verse 28, it says, And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it be thou, bid me to come on the water. So now Peter, sitting in the boat, sees and understands who this is. And and when he asks the question, if it be thou, um, in in the Greek he's not asking, if it's you, he's saying, because it's you. Because it's you. I, I recognize that it is you, so bid me, command me to come to you. And even that, I think, is interesting. He didn't say, if it's you, or because it's you, I want, I'm going to go see you, or is it okay if I come see you? He says, bid me to, command me to. In other words, I don't want it to just be my will, Lord. I want you to, come, you, you to want me to come to see you. And there's been a lot of scholars and a lot of theologians that have discussed reasons why Peter wanted to come out of the boat. 
They say maybe Peter was just doing a little experiment to see if he could do it too. I mean, I think that's maybe too complicated. What I think, honestly, I think Peter, he, saw, he understood it was Jesus, and he just wanted to be near him. That's Jesus. I want to go there. That's a great attitude to have, isn't it? And so he says, Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you. And at this point, his eyes, his focus, everything he has is completely directed toward Christ. Verse 29, and he said, come. And when Peter was come down into the ship, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. But when he saw the wind boisterous, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried, saying, Lord, save me. Here's this one victorious, wonderful moment in the life of Peter when his focus is entirely on Jesus, and he just wants to be with him, and he says, Lord, bid me to come. And Jesus says, come, and he gets out of the boat, and he's walking on water. What a glorious moment, followed by this failure, followed by distraction, being distracted. You know, at first I thought, the problem was he took his eyes off Jesus. He stopped looking at Jesus. And yeah, okay, that, I guess that's it. But what I think really happened here is that he had his eyes on Jesus and all of a sudden the peripheral vision kicked in and he, he saw the stuff around Jesus. He, you know, he saw the things beside him. And so he didn't purposely take his eyes off Jesus and look somewhere else. He just got distracted, right? All of a sudden, this focus, this tunnel vision on Jesus was brought in to see all the trouble. And when he saw the trouble, he was distracted by it. When he saw the world around him, it, it was just too enticing for him to look at. And as soon as he started focusing on something other than Jesus, he started to sink. Peter looks away, he loses his faith. And the question here that I want to deal with is, was it Peter's faith that was keeping him afloat? Was it because Peter had such great faith that he was able to walk on the water? And I think the answer is no. In fact, I think you look through life of Peter, you wouldn't, I mean, especially at this point, you'd never say that he had this great, powerful faith. I think there's a lot of people that have faith in a lot of things more than Peter did. And they can't walk on water. Do you know why? Because it wasn't Peter's faith, it was the object of his faith. Peter's faith wasn't so powerful that allowed him to do these things. He just had faith in the right person. And the title of the sermon tonight is Floundering Faith in Stormy Seas. And the truth is, there are times when we go through this struggle and this walk, and our faith isn't that great. In fact, you might call our faith small. But if we keep our faith directed toward the right object, then he is powerful even when our faith is not strong. And so Peter, he has small faith, he has floundering faith, but he knows enough that as he start, begins to sink, he needs to call out again to Christ. And so he says, Jesus, save me. And Jesus' reaction to him is incredible. And immediately, verse 31, immediately Jesus stretched forth his hand and caught him and said unto him, O thou of little faith, Wherefore didst thou doubt? Now, if we're taking this story as, as, as an analogy, you've got to recognize how incredible this is. Jesus doesn't let him sink and talk to him as he's going down. Jesus doesn't keep him there for a while. He saves him, and then he teach, teaches him the lesson. Wherefore didst thou doubt? And, and the idea here of doubt, 
the word doubt is the idea of looking in two directions at the same time or trying to serve two masters at the same time. It's just this idea of why were you distracted by this other master? Why, were, why did you allow this fear to be greater than your fear of me? Why did that happen? Why did you doubt? And he asks the question, even though, from a human perspective, there were a million reasons to doubt. Right? I mean, you think of the situation they're in. Waves everywhere. Crazy wind. I guarantee it's, it's loud. It's dark. They've been working all night. I mean, he has all these reasons to doubt, not counting the fact that he's walking on water. I mean, this is liquid that he usually drinks that he's now stepping on. It's not a normal thing. It's not, it's not possible. And so he's in the middle of this impossible situation, and Jesus is saying, why would you doubt? And it seems like, because I'm walking on water. But his point is, Jesus' point is, when you're looking at him, when you're with him, you have absolutely no reason to doubt, even when you're walking on water. Even when every circumstance is against you. Even when it seems impossible. Why are you doubting? Verse 32. And when they were coming to the ship, the wind ceased. As soon as Jesus steps in the boat, the storm ceases to exist. It is calm. Verse 33. Then they that were in the ship came and worshipped him, saying, Of a truth, thou art the Son of God. And so we see here that this miracle produced the desired response in the disciples. The miracle wasn't showing off. He was showing the disciples who he was. He is the Son of God. And, and I think it is just insane that there are people that they wish to call Jesus a, a good teacher, a good leader. Um, some of them even go to the point of a prophet. And they don't realize that, that he claimed his own divinity. And that everybody around him, when they saw him for who he was, recognized it. Now, there are people that will say, well, look at he's called the Son of God, but also, you know, aren't human beings called the sons of God at different points? Yeah, okay, so let's, let's follow that logic a little bit. Okay? So the disciples see Jesus walk on water and calm a storm and allow Peter to walk on water, and the response is, look at, I, I truly see now that you're really a human being. Right? You're a son of God, just like we are. Now, that logic doesn't work, does it? No, what he's saying is, we understand that you are divine. That you are the son of God in, in a unique way that, that you and God are one. And so this story that we've just gone over, I know it's a familiar story, but it's so rich with lessons, and I think it has such a variety of applications to our lives. And this is really one of the wonderful things about God's Word. You get into it, and you see something, you look at it afresh, and all of a sudden, God is teaching you these truths. And so what I want to do tonight, I'm not going to try and play out different applications. I want you to do that for yourself. What I want to do tonight, as we close, is just to summarize what happened in this story. We're going to look at what Peter did well, where Peter went wrong, and how Jesus taught. And I, I, I truly do want you to, to take these things that the Bible says, this story, and then take the time when we're done and apply it to your own life. All right? And so we'll look at, number one, what Peter did well. I think it's human nature to read a story like this and to immediately see all the flaws in the disciples and in Peter's actions, right? I mean, you know, 
why were they so scared? Why did they doubt? Um, in Mark, it says that their hearts were hardened, so they didn't, they didn't remember that he had fed the 5,000. So why, how could they possibly forget that? Right? Why would Peter take his eyes off Jesus? It's very easy to see those things. But can I tell you something? This is an incredible story of faith and obedience. And so they did many things well. Number one, they obeyed when they were commanded to go. They didn't understand why Jesus was telling them to get in the boat in the first time, but they did it. Right? They obeyed when they were commanded to go. Simple obedience. Number two, they continued down the path they were sent despite great difficulty. And so God put them on a trajectory. He, he said, go this direction. And all of a sudden they meet this difficulty. And they don't say, oh, we must have got Jesus' command wrong. He must have meant go to the other direction. Um, maybe he wanted us to actually walk it. Or maybe he's saying just like, you know, get a hotel room. And he, he, the boat, hotel, you know, you get those confused all the time. They didn't try and change Jesus' commands. They didn't try and make them suit their circumstances so that their circumstances would be better. They kept rowing. I mean, don't miss that. He said, go from here to here. They got in the middle of the storm, and so for eight to ten hours, they're on this journey. They're halfway there. It should have taken the whole thing, should have taken an hour, but they're still going. Now, when the wind is contrary to you, where, how, what's the fastest way to get to land if your goal is land? Turn, turn around, right? I mean, then, then you've got the wind behind you. I, I'm not a sailor. I just assume this is how it works, right? But they didn't. They kept going toward their, their destination. And so despite the great difficulty, they continued through the storm. Number three, um, Peter wanted to be where Jesus was. You look at the, Peter's story here, and he wanted to be where Jesus was. Um, if we lose this, if we lose our love for Jesus... We can do a lot of the right things, and we can look right, and we can fool a lot of people around us, but we've missed what Christianity is all about. And when you miss what Christianity is all about, you will still have to do the things, the rules, the traditions. You'll still have to go through the motions. You'll still have to say no to the things that you know, sometimes you want to say yes to, but I promise you will lose the joy. You will lose the peace. Because Christianity, it's about a relationship. And so as soon as we lose the relationship, the love, as soon as we lose the I just want to be where he is that Peter had here, then we lose everything good that comes with Christianity. Okay? And so Peter wanted to be where Jesus was. He had enough faith to step out of the boat. Number four, Peter knew where to turn when he began to sink. When this story started, when he when Jesus said, come, don't think that Jesus didn't know what was going to happen to Peter. Jesus knew that he would step out of the boat, take two steps, and look around. And he was teaching Peter and teaching us that when that happens, when we look around, when we find ourselves struggling and in trouble, we look to Jesus and we say, Jesus, save me. Save my, my soul. Lord, save me in this circumstance. Save me from what I'm going through. Save me from myself. Every time we get into trouble, that's the right response. Jesus, save me. And so, Peter knew where to turn when he began to sink. Little faith in the right object is powerful. Right? It's the faith of a mustard seed. It's little, but it's got the right object. Number five, they recognize the power, the authority, and the divinity of Jesus. 
Right? At the end of the story, the lesson was taught. It's one of those aha moments where they get to land and they say, you are the son of God. And, and that being, I think, simultaneously terrified and in awe of and excited about God is something we need to do more often. They had that aha. You are the son of God. So we look at their lives. We look at the Peter here and the disciples, and we see that they did many things well. So what did they do wrong? What, where did Peter go wrong? And number one, he was distracted by the storm. I mean, are we ever going to not be distracted by the storm? I don't know. Are we ever going to master this? I don't know. I, I think even the best of us at times are, are going to find ourselves looking at the circumstances and wondering what's going on. I think the best of us are, saying, are going to say, Lord, I was going the direction you told me to go. Why is this happening? But here in this story, I think we're being taught that, that what we ought to strive for is keeping our eyes on Christ, continuing to trust him. So we, he was distracted by the storm. Number two, he took his eyes off Jesus. He took his eyes off Jesus. That is what doubt is. When we, when we start to doubt, what we start doing is saying, I fear my circumstances more than I fear God. I trust myself and my ability to get through this more than I trust God's ability to get me through this. So we need to keep our eyes on Jesus. Right? I mean, isn't that what Hebrews 12 tells us? Keep your eyes on Christ. The joy before him, he suffered. Keep your eyes on him. That's what Peter did well. That's, what Peter, that's where Peter went wrong. But I, I think one of the most interesting things about this whole story is when we look at how Jesus taught. Because I think when we look at how Jesus taught, we can say, maybe Jesus is teaching me in a similar way. Maybe, maybe some of the things that I think are just awful in my life are things that God is using to teach me. And so number one, this is how Jesus taught. He sent them out alone with no explanation. And this is how Jesus was teaching them. And what I, what I mean here is, if Jesus was to give them a road map and, and even get in the boat and go with them and not have a storm and, and for them to have all the direction, for them to have all the knowledge would have been worse for them than what he did, right? I was going to um, do two things. I was going to do, this is what Jesus did right and then this is what Jesus did wrong, right? And then I was going to say, Jesus did nothing wrong, okay? So, and then Tara was like, you can't do that because as soon as you said Jesus did something wrong, people are going to have a heart attack. Um, so I wanted you to live through that part so you can get to the point that Jesus does nothing wrong, right? Everything he does is good. And in this case, what was best, what was good, was to send them out alone with no explanation. Number two, he allowed them to suffer, to struggle, and to go through the storm. And so for hours, he watches as they toil, as they're tormented, as they're struggling, as they're sweating, as their hands are bleeding from the calluses that have ripped off and I mean, they're going through the storm in the darkness, in the fear, and he's watching them. And the best thing for him to do for them was to allow them to go through that storm. He allowed them to suffer, to struggle, to go through the storm. Number three, he showed up when it was least expected. Here Jesus shows up, and they don't even recognize that it's him at first. I mean, they're in the middle of the sea. Are you expecting somebody to show up in the middle of a storm in the middle of the sea? No, you're not. And sometimes I think he shows up and we don't even notice. Well, here they didn't, they didn't know it was him. But he showed up. 
when they least expected him, when it seemed impossible. Number four, he reassured them first with his person and not with his power. What Jesus wanted them to get was not just that he would do for them, but the fact that, that, the fact that he was the I am is enough. Take courage. Be of good cheer. Why? Not because everything is good again, but because I am. And so Jesus was teaching them by saying, my person is enough. The circumstance doesn't need to change for my person to be enough. So he reassured them first with his person, not with his power. Number five, he demonstrated his person by his power. And, and don't just, I mean, I, sometimes I, I feel like because we are called to suffer and because sometimes God puts us through suffering, as Christians we sometimes don't even expect God to ever do incredible, amazing things. But he can, and he does. I, I love the attitude of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that if God wants, us to deliver, wants to deliver us from the furnace, he will. But if not, we'll still worship him. They acknowledge that he could and that he was powerful. And so Jesus' person is enough to deliver you. But you know what's wonderful? He's powerful. And sometimes he will choose to just step in and calm the storm. And that's a, that's a wonderful hope. And, and when he doesn't, we know that he's there. And he's with us and he's watching. Number six. He saved Peter in his moment of desperate need when he called out to him. This is how he taught them. He taught them that whenever they're in that desperate trouble and there's no other hope, that you can call out to Jesus and he'll save you. This is, these are lessons that we learned from this story. Now, I read this story, and I have to believe that as we go through it, there are some, there's something here that's applicable to us. I think there are some things that we can learn from it. Um, how many times do we feel as though we don't understand why God has put us in the situation he has? I'm sure it happens to you. It happens to me all the time. Why am I in this, Lord? What do you have here? What's going on? How often do we struggle for what seems like an eternity with no help and no sign of help? Sometimes it just seems like it, you know, the bad news never stops. You know, we, we expected this miracle and then it's not there. We expected the help and it's not there. Eight hours of rowing is a long time. I know, I know, you know, we're talking days and years sometimes and struggles, but he just doesn't step in all the time. Sometimes he lets us struggle. How quickly do we allow ourselves to be distracted by the wind rather than watching the Savior? I mean, that might be the number one for all of us. How easily are we distracted from what's going on around us when we take our eyes off Christ? I want you to think about the greatest struggle you face and realize that Jesus sent that storm your way. He could have stopped it. The storm is there with his permission. He is with you, even though you're not aware of it. He is teaching you through the storm, and he will never allow the storm to destroy you. The storm won't destroy us as long as we walk with Christ. It's for our good. It has been said that if it is a result of obedience to Christ's command that the church or the individual Christian is in a situation of danger or distress, then there is no need to fear. Who do we fear? Do we fear the one that can kill the body, or do we fear the one that can kill the soul in the body? God is all-powerful. 
He's all-knowing. We serve a God who holds us in our hands, in his hands, who keeps us by his power. We serve a God who's in control. And so when we get into these circumstances, let's, let's remember this story. Let's remember that Jesus is there. He's watching us. When Jesus went away to pray, what do you think he prayed for? He's praying for us. He loves us. He's not sending us in a storm to destroy us. He's sending us into storms to refine us and to help us. And that's what he did here. And the ultimate, the end of that was the disciples having that, aha, you are the son of God. And that's where he wants us to get. You're powerful, you're great, you're mighty. Let's pray this evening.